Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Well, good morning. The kids are dismissed. And I'll invite you in turn to your, your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. We will continue on in that way. And as you're turning there, let me just say, Happy Mother's Day to the mothers in the room. Yes. Praise God for moms. Moms have a job that is literally blood, sweat, and tears and other bodily fluids, unfortunately, which is why my family is not here today. We got a little surprise of illness this morning. So you can pray for them. What a great start to Mother's Day for Brittany, you know, unfortunately. But we're glad that the Lord is continuing to bless us as we um, look to move forward as families. And we just love moms. So thank you for all you do and the way that you serve our families. And uh, we love you. With that, let's look at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Well, about 20 years before this story takes place, a rabbi named Hithel was asked to stand on one foot. And he said if he could stand on just one foot and summarize all of the law, what would he do? And he said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is the commentary thereof. And then he was able to place his foot down. Well, that's not much different than how Jesus answers this question as he's asked by a scribe, what is the most important, or the word that he actually uses here is the heaviest of God's commands. And he tells them to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's a positive statement of what this Jewish rabbi said 20 years earlier of to don't do what's hateful to your neighbor. Don't do that to them. What's hateful to you, don't do that to your neighbor. And that's all the Torah is. And that's what it teaches. And I point that out to say that this is the golden rule. Jesus did say it and he teach it, but he wasn't the first to say it. There's other world religions that say this kind of thing. There's something deeply ingrained, ingrained with us and human beings where we would say, wouldn't the world just be a little bit better of a place if everyone just treated other people the way that they want to be treated? And we would say, of course they do. But I think what's so interesting to me is that when Jesus uh, is asked the question, what is the heaviest of all the law? Ultimately, what Jesus commands is love. Jesus commands us to love God and to love people. We put that on our website. I saw somebody just in a Panera the other day wore a t-shirt that said, love God, love people. It's not the first time you've heard that. When people ask us about Redemption Hill, what makes you unique? I made me make them feel uncomfortable. I said, what makes us unique is we try not to be unique. Redemption Hill wants to be known for whatever Christian church has been known for since the day of Jesus, that we love God and that we love people. That's our goal and that's our aim. That's what we want to do. This parallel text is what we preach for in our very first sermon, that we would be a church that loves God, loves people, because Jesus says this is the weightiest of all those commands are these two commands that he gives. But what I want to look at today, this go around at the text, 
is three necessities that I think we bring out from the text that we need to fulfill those commands, the command to love. There are three necessities that we need to see. And first is this, is that in order to love, you must know. You must know to be able to love. The second is that we are to love on God's terms. We love God's way. When we talk about love, that's not arbitrary, but it's specific. And finally, that we would see that love is worship. That to love well is an act of worship. And that's what I want us to see as we walk through the text today. And so I'm going to read the entirety of the text uh, for us in a moment. And what you'll see even on the slides, because of just the way the text kind of says, is you know, Jesus says things and basically the scribe like repeats him right after. I'm going to pull from both of those parts of the text when I walk through and see those necessities. And so it's really important if you have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to have that open because all of it can't fit on the slides. So I'm just taking the excerpts that can fit on the slides, and that's what's on the slides. But this morning you might have to look down to catch some of the context a little bit. But let's go ahead and read the entire passage so that we're all on the same page going to this. Mark 12, 28 through 34. It said, One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, the, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and that there is no one other, other, there's no other besides him. And to him, with all, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to question, to ask him any more questions. Well, we see that our first necessity is that we must know in order to love. To set the here, this scribe is listening to these other people who've been questioning Jesus, and Jesus has been able to refute them, whether they're Sadducees asking about the resurrection, whether they are Pharisees asking about taxes paid to Caesar, or other things about where their authority, his authority may come from. Jesus has been able to, to outwit them and to talk to them, and that is obviously frustrating to them. And so now they're arguing with one of another. Come on, what, who's going to ask the next question? Why did you ask that? That was too easy, right? I don't know what they're saying, but they're arguing with one another. And this scribe, seeing that these other people are arguing with one another, he goes by himself to Jesus. And that's a little different than what we've seen so far. So far, it's been groups of people, but this is just one scribe. And per- perhaps that's a show of his genuineness, that he's willing to go just to Jesus And he starts to ask a question, and this question is a bit more genuine than the ones we've seen before. The other ones we've said, they're a trap. They're trying to trap Jesus. The whole point of the question, they they weren't really trying to seek knowledge. They're trying to ask a question that Jesus cannot answer. But this one seems a little more genuine. And he asked Jesus about the weightiest of the laws. And like I said, so the word that's used there is, is weighty. This scribe is coming from a tradition where the Old Testament commands were broken down into 613 commands. 
365 of those commands were negative or prohibitive, like don't do this, while 248 were positive commands, go ahead and do this. And then those commands then were also subdivided into categories of that which were heavy and that which were light. Heavy commands carried with them more burden and more punishment should you fail to obey them. Light commands, less burden, less punishment, but also something else about heavy commands. Heavy commands were seen to hold foundation for the light ones. The heavy commands were the commands that all the other commands would rest upon. And so when this scribe comes to Jesus, and he's not just asking what is most important, he's asking him, What are the heaviest of the commands? Meaning, what uphold all the other commands of the Old Testament? That Jesus quotes two passages of Scripture. One is a passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This was called the Shema. It was literally a daily prayer that all Jews would memorize and every day they would pray that prayer and recite it. And in that chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses instructs the people to to teach all of God's laws to their children as they're walking around, hang them on their doorpost, things like this. It's clearly very, very foundational. But then Jesus also quotes from Leviticus 19. I don't think we have it on the screen, actually, when he tells him to love your neighbor as yourself. These are Old Testament laws that are being quoted. And Jesus is saying these are the heaviest of the law. They're the foundation. The rest of those laws, those rest of those, I guess, 611 laws would rest on these two. But what's interesting, and something that I want to point out and draw out from Mark, is that while Jesus quotes those passages in Matthew and in Luke 10 as well, in different kinds of ways, or they're quoted at least by somebody else in Luke 10, and these are brought up, they're actually missing a portion that's brought out in Mark. And that is verse 4 in Deuteronomy, or in our text in Mark. It is the command, and we see what we must know. It should be on the screen there and highlighted in red on the two slides is that Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord. The Pharisee, or excuse me, the scribe, responds to him and says, Teacher, you are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him, and to love him. We have to know before we can love. What's interesting is in Mark, there's this, statement of theology of who God is before the command to love him. There is a statement, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now, most obviously, this teaches what we would call monotheism. It teaches that there is only one God. And so while we are Trinitarian and we believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God. We believe that God has manifested himself in that way of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but all one God. But that's not all that's being taught when we say the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's not just monotheism. 
pushing back against the polytheist of the Old Testament, meaning multiple gods, right? The, the surrounding communities and countries and nations around Israel worshipped multiple gods. But it's also saying something else about the character of God. It is declaring that he is unique. Yes, we do believe in just one God, but it's not just this kind of objective doctrine and that's where it gets left. It's declaring something about his very nature, his very character. It's declaring that not only is there one God, but because there is only one God, that there is, in the words of our scribe, no one else like him. He's unique. There's no one like our God. We just sang that over and over. We do that because it's like that Shema. We're trying to put that into our minds so that we would know that. And why is that so important for us as a people? Because the reality is, is our life and culture isn't that much different than it was in Deuteronomy, and it isn't that much different than it was in the time of Mark. In the book of Deuteronomy, the surrounding cultures had a a desire to move towards a polytheistic understanding of the world, a pantheon of gods. They saw that there were multiple gods and they would assign them to various parts of life, compartmentalize them. And in the day of Rome, which is who Mark is writing to, probably primarily a Gentile audience, he is making this statement that Jesus is teaching that there is one God and only one God because Romans worshipped multiple gods. And I think we can look at that and say, Josh, but nobody's worshipping multiple gods today. We don't do that. If anything, our culture is atheistic, meaning they don't have any god. And I would challenge you and say, is that really the heartbeat of our culture? Because I read the culture and it says this, you can believe in any god on one condition. You're not allowed to say he's the only one. We live in a pluralistic society. We live in a day and age that would say, every God is equal. How dare you say, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one, and there is no one like him. In our church, we read Deuteronomy 6.4. We read Jesus in Mark 12.29, and we just pass over it. But this is a massively controversial statement the moment you walk out of these doors and into that world when you make the claim that there is no one like your God. See, the Bible is not calling us to love in this kind of arbitrary way, in love a God. The Bible calls us to love the one and only God. The world says all places lead to the same thing, which is saying that there is no distinct or unique and beautiful God, the God of the Bible. But the Bible in Isaiah 46, 9, God says this about himself. He says, for I am God and there is no other I am God, and there is none like me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is one God, and he is unique, and there is no one like him? Is it important to believe that? Is it important to make that distinction? Well, I can tell you this when it comes to love. My wife wants me to make that kind of distinction. If I go home, I'm going to really ruin Mother's Day if I just tell her, hey, I love a woman. You know, talk to Kendall. Yeah, 
I love a wife, your wife, my wife. I lo- what? Go to the Redemption Hill leadership team. They ask, how's family and life going? Well, I'm in love with a woman. Like, I'm fired, right? Like, this is a big deal. They're calling the provisional board saying, we got a major problem. But it massively changes. It massively changes. If I go home today and say, Brittany, happy Mother's Day. I love you and there is no one like you. There is no one like my wife. If I go to that team and they say, Josh, how's marriage and family life going? And I say, I love my wife. There is nobody like her. The team walks away and says, okay, we don't need to call anyone. The pastor's all right. Life is good in the Rosentreader house. Knowledge, intimate, unique knowledge is necessary for love to be impactful and meaningful. We cannot just say we love God and not know who God is. We must say we love God and understand that there is no one else like him. And I just want you to imagine with me, if you will, the power in that. You're tempted to pleasure. There is no pleasure like the pleasure found in my God. You're tempted toward status or power. There is no power like the resurrection power found in my God, the only one to conquer the grave. Tempted in acceptance or fear of man. There is no one like our God and his acceptance is all that matters because there's no one like him. When you're tempted and tried in this world, you have ammunition to fight back. And it's that truth to tell yourself this week, there is no one like my God. When it feels hopeless, there is no one like my God. When you feel weak, there is no one like my God. He will be there to strengthen you, comfort you, and lift you up with his righteous That's who our God is, and it matters. We have to know him. This claim of theology that Mark gives us that the others don't is probably because of his audience of Gentiles who are coming out of polytheistic polytheistic worldviews. But I think that's our worldview. It claims an atheism but practices a polytheism that's convoluted and tricky. It's a pluralistic theism. But we have to push back and say there is no one like our God. And as we grow in the knowledge of God, what we grow in is the knowledge that God wants to be worshipped and loved in specific kinds of ways. And we see that, that we must love God on his terms. Verses 31, 30 to 31, and half of 33. We read this. And Jesus says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then the scribe responds to Jesus, and he says, And to love him, talking about God, with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as ourselves. That's what they're saying. They're both in agreement that we are to love God and love God on our terms. And here's what I want us to point out. I want to see three things kind of in this 
sub-point of the sub-point of the sermon, that we must love as Jesus has commanded to love, is that when we love on God's terms, that God's terms are very, very high. They're unusually high. (laughs) Because God commands you to love him with everything. He commands you to love everyone. And then when we ask even what is love, we see that love is quite an exhaustive kind of thing. So I just want to look at those three things. That's this. He wants to love us with everything. In our text, we're given this list. This list that in uh, Matthew, they, they don't have might or strength. It doesn't get listed. But in Deuteronomy, he doesn't list the mind. And I think what's going on here, I don't think they're misquoting or, or misusing it, but rather what's happening is the lists are looking a little different because the point isn't for the list to be exhaustive. Like you don't just get to like check off four boxes and be like, got it, and I'm loving God the way that I'm supposed to. But you know, my imagination, I don't have to love him with that. My artwork, I don't have to love him with that. If I can think of something outside of the list, then I'm all good. I just have to love him with, you know, my heart, which is like my emotions, and just like my spirit, which is just like my soul. And then I just have to love him with the mind. Okay, as long as I'm giving my, my intellect, my will, I guess that's like my strength or my will, my mind. Okay, good. Check, 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 check. All good. Loving God the way I'm supposed to where I would say God is commanding you to love him with all those things, with your emotions, with your mind, with your will, with your soul. Absolutely. But the point of the list isn't that you can find some kind of loophole and say, I guess I don't have to love God with that. The point of the list is to be all-encompassing, not exhaustive. He's commanding you to love him with everything, which means the moment you don't, you're not obeying this command. The moment there's something that you try to hold off to the side, the moment you say, I don't want to love God with that, ah, that we're no longer obedient. It's a high, high standard. We also have to love everyone. In Luke 10, the, the scribe comes to him, and, and, or a lawyer comes to Jesus, and he asks this question about the, the importance, the awaitiness of the commands. They, he talks about, you know, Jesus asks him, like, what do you think it is? He responds, The lawyer does with this text, and Jesus says, good job. And then the lawyer, looking to justify himself, says, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells this parable. He tells a parable of a a Jewish man who's, who's robbed and mugged and beaten up and left on the side of a road. And a priest comes by and walks to the other side, and a Levite walks by and comes to the other side. These are religious figures in Judaism who should be doing the right thing. And then a Samaritan comes by. The Samaritans were people that Jews thought were dirty, unclean. They have no understanding of the law. They certainly wouldn't understand what the most important laws are. They worship God in the wrong place. They did the wrong things. But the Samaritan comes, and he takes care of this man. He pays for his lodging. He cares for him feels, uh, dresses his wounds. And at the end of the story, Jesus asks the crowd, asks the lawyer, who was this man's neighbor? And they have to say, the Samaritan was the neighbor. What is Jesus saying? When he's asked, who is your neighbor? Jesus says, your neighbor is everyone. Your neighbor is the people that you don't expect them to be. And what it means to be neighborly is to care for everyone, even your enemy. Now that's a high standard. I have a hard time loving my kids more than I love myself. I just want them to go to bed. Just go to bed. They don't want to go to bed. They're wrestling back and forth. The temper flares. If I can intimidate them and get them to do what I want to do, what's happening? I'm not putting 
them before myself. Now, that doesn't mean, you're giggling over there, you get to do what you want. Dad says go to bed, you got to go to bed. But it does mean that I can handle that differently. If I love my kid as I love myself, when I'm misbehaving, when I'm doing what's wrong, I don't want someone to yell at me. I want someone to correct me, to come alongside me, give me discipline, and help me grow. That's what we're trying to say. And Jesus is saying, you got to do that with everybody. You got to do that with your enemy. You got to do that with the people who don't like you, the people who don't want to talk to you. You have to love them. And finally, what I say is love in itself is exhaustive. 1 Corinthians 13, popular passage. This is getting ready to be wedding season. You're going to hear this one a couple times. You go to a wedding. Verses 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So Jesus is saying, you have to love with everything you are, and you have to love everyone, and when you do it, you have to always be patient and kind. When you do this, you cannot envy or boast. When you do this, you better not get arrogant or rude. You need to be humble in your love. You need to be considerate and courteous in your love. It does not insist on its own way. You can't demand of the other person what they should be giving to you, but rather you are considering them as more significant than yourself. Can't be irritable or resentful, even at three o'clock in the morning. It doesn't rejoice at the wrong, but it rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Here's the thing. When he asked Jesus for the heaviest commands, Jesus didn't disappoint him. That's a heavy load. That's a really heavy load and burden on your back. The law and the commands of God, when we see them, we cannot look and say, that's easy. I think that's why we're so prone to legalism. Give me the 613 things to do or not do. That's way easier than these two. Because these two are hard. I can't love that way all of the time. And yet... What's so interesting is that Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And listen to verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How is this possible? Jesus, what are the commands we have to do? Jesus piles them on. They're super heavy. And then he says, oh, hey, by the way, my my yoke, it's easy and it's light. How can his yoke be easy and light and yet the commands be so incredibly burdensome, so heavy on our back? Well, for that, I want to read to you. It's a helpful little book called The Pilgrim's Progress. This is a wonderful thing to read. It was written by John Bunyan. He was a lay person put in prison for his faith. And he wrote this little story about a character named Christian. It's all about Christian's journey to the celestial city. It's a wonderful little thing. Uh, Just read Little Pilgrim's uh, Big Journey, which is the kid version of the book. It took like an hour to read. Judah listened to it for 45 minutes. We would get to the end of a chapter and I would say, you want to keep going? Yeah, keep going. I cried at this part of it. 
because it describes Christian, and Christian in the beginning of it has this burden on his back that he cannot get rid of. And the burden is his sin, and the burden is the law of God. But listen to what happens to Christian. Now in my dream, the highway on which Christian was to travel was fenced on both sides with a wall called salvation. The burdened Christian ran up this way with great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran like this until he came to a place where the road climbed up a small hill. And at the top of the hill stood a cross. And a little below at the bottom was a stone tomb. In my dream, just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders and fell off his back. And it tumbled and continued to do so down the hill until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell inside and was seen no more. Christian was so glad and overjoyed, and in his excitement he said, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. He stood still for a while and looked with astonishment at the cross. It surprised him that at the sight of the cross released him of his burden. He looked and looked again as tears ran down his cheeks. Christian jumped for joy, leaping to the air three times and went on his way singing, Thus far did I come burdened with my sin. No one else could ease the grief that I was in. Until I came here, what a place this is. Is this the place, the beginning of my blessedness? Is this the place the burden fell from my back? Is this the place where the strings that bound it broke, bound it to me broke? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man who was there put to shame for me. John Bunyan is helping us see what Isaiah predicted about Jesus in Isaiah 53, 4-6. He says, Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How is his yoke light? Not by lightening the law, but by picking up the burden. Jesus doesn't come to the law and make it easier. He doesn't just boil down 613 commands into two and say, see, follow me, my way is easier than their way. Jesus says, the way is hard, the burden is more than you can bear. I will take it and bear it on the cross for you. And I have bore the burden and it now falls off your back to be dead and never seen again. If you follow me, The yoke will be easy and the burden will be light. He picks up the weight for you. It's laid on him. You can't get rid of this burden on your own. But we must go to the cross and see that it's there, that it falls off of our shoulders. That the love of God is required 
To love God and to live out these commands requires the love of God himself. We cannot do this in our own. When we feel the weight of the law and cry out to Jesus to bear the burden for us, we respond in worship. You can only love God and love your neighbor if you're responding to God and your neighbor as an act of worship for God who has saved you. That brings us to our final sub-point of this morning, that Jesus commands us to love, and to do that, we must see that love is worship. In verse 33, the scribe tells us, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Burnt offerings and sacrifices were the way that these people would worship God. And he is saying, what is better than burnt sacrifice What is better than burnt offering, better than sacrifice, is a heart that loves God with everything and loves other people. And he's saying to Jesus, that's what is right. That is what is good. And Jesus, you're right. That's what worship is. We just saw that in Micah. What does man require of you? To walk humbly, to love kindness, to do justice. These are the things that God wants us to do. It's not about our own ability and what we bring to the table. Rather, it's about a willing and contrite heart. Those are the things that God delights in. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, if we go back there before the beautiful love chapter, Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing if I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Jesus is saying the importance is to love God. We can't just say, well, I give a lot to God. I do a lot of stuff for God. I've sacrificed so much for you, God. Aren't you so lucky that I'm on your team? No, we have to say, if I have not love, the sacrifices are meaningless. The amazing things, the knowledge that we might have, the faith we might try to exhibit, it is nothing. You can literally give yourself up to martyrdom, but it will be nothing if you do not love God and love neighbor. So how can we know if we're living out these commands? How can I know that I'm doing this and what does this look like in every life? And I want to do that. I want to live out that kind of life of worship. I want to love God and I want to love people. Well, one is I want to maybe encourage you to give yourself a bit of a diagnostic this week. What made you angry? this week? What made you sad? What made you excited? See, these are all questions that will lead us to our loves. What did we get angry about? What did we get sad about? What did we get excited about? And when you start to analyze that throughout your week, we start to see, what am I loving? Am I loving others more than I love myself? Am I loving God more than all those other things? What am I getting passionate about? I'll make a confession. We're house hunting. Want to guess what made me angry, sad, and excited this week? Zillow. I got mad when people bought houses from curb offers before I could even go look at them. I got sad when I realized that I can't get the house that I want because I don't have enough money. Got excited when I got to put in a bid on a house yesterday. 
feel anxious as I wait to hear about that bed. It's not wrong to be excited about those things. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is we've got we've to check the heart. I've got to remind myself in that moment, even when I get excited, my family will not be happy and my life won't magically get better just because we get a house that we want that won't fix any problems. A house can quickly become an idol. And I'm sure many of you could fill in the blank with that. If the anger, sadness, and excitement diagnostic is coming up blank for you, maybe you can do a fill in the blank one. If I just had blank, life would be better. And that's how we can say, that's where a love of God needs to increase. That's where love of neighbor needs to increase because it's not true. Just having something isn't going to make your life better. It's at his right hand that there is pleasure forevermore. Jesus makes life better. He's got to be number one. And then everything else, eventually down the line, the house can make the list. But oh, it can consume you, can't it? As we look at our scribe, Jesus responds to them in a way that is so different than the other responses. The other people are against Jesus. They're not for him. But Jesus says this to the scribe. He says, and when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, verse 34, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. He's not far from the kingdom of God. He knows what God is requiring of him. It is step one. We've got to see these commands and we've got to see the heaviness of them. But Jesus doesn't tell him that he's there. He doesn't ask him to come and follow him. He doesn't say you've made it and you've entered the kingdom. He just says, you're close. So what's he missing? I don't want you to be close to the kingdom of God. I want you to be in it. I want you to be there. As I reflect and I ask myself that question of the text, what is the scribe missing? He gets the answer right and then agrees with the right answer. What is he missing? Here's what I could come up with. He knows that he has to love God and he knows that he has to love people. What I don't think he clearly sees is that God loves him. The Bible tells us that we love because he first loved us. In Romans 5, 8, it's one of my favorite short little passages of scripture. It says that while God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. We've got to see, yes, there is a call and a command to love God, love neighbor, But we've got to say, I can't do that. Not on my own. I need help to do that. But you know what's more important? God loves you. Your entrance in the kingdom is not contingent upon your love for God. Your entrance into the kingdom is contingent upon his love for you. And we said in point number one, to love you must know. Nobody knows you. Nobody knows you like Jesus knows you. Nobody. But you know what that means? 
Nobody loves you like Jesus loves you. While you are still yet a sinner, you're getting it wrong. There isn't anything lovely about you. The burden is on your back and you can't get rid of it. But by his wonderful and beautiful grace, he's placed you on the path of salvation and he's walled you in so that you make it to the cross and you cast your eyes there and the burden falls off your back and it is dead. It falls into a tomb to never be seen again. Why? Not because of your love for God, but because of his love for you. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what we have to see this morning. Is as Jesus lays these heavy commands on the scribe and he tells him, yeah, you're close. He's gonna start to break it down. He's doing this with three predictions coming on the front end. I'm gonna be delivered over by these religious people to these Romans. They're gonna spit on me, mock me, eventually kill me, but I will rise again because I love you. He's gonna set his face towards Jerusalem. Why? for the joy that goes before him. Because he knows he's bringing many sons to glory. He loves you so much. And it's going to be love that takes him to that cross. While you're still yet a sinner, he'll die for you. That's the rest of Mark. That's what I want us to see today. Jesus, he loves you so much more than I could ever could more than anyone else in your life. Your hopelessness, your struggle, and your difficulty needs to be faced with this truth. Jesus loves you. It's small, it doesn't feel very profound, but it changes everything. Only by it can we grab these three necessities, and only by it can we fulfill these commands to love God and neighbor. If we first see that he loved us. Let's pray.